Today we're going to get into Genesis 14. I, I appreciate Gunnar giving me a chance to teach on this. I enjoy this chapter very much. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get to Genesis 14 where Abraham rescues Lot. Heavenly Father, it's your word. And we're just a drop in the bucket, Father. We're just, we're just a vapor in a short history of this world. And so many people have read this word and it's made a difference and empowered them and encouraged them to do great things and to trust in you. So, Father, now let us enter into this uh, long line of saints who have valued your word and help us to see what you have for each of us. Help us to be accurate and true and help us to um, bring glory to you through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we, uh, because of the Easter season, took kind of a gap in our study of the book of Genesis. Gunner jumped into it again last week and started up. I, uh, being a teacher more than I am a preacher, I think a little bit of review is in order um, in our study. So you'll recall that in God's uh, creation of the world, he placed Adam in this beautiful garden that we call Eden, and God created man for intimacy with himself, uh, Genesis uh, 2 and following. And God gave Adam and, and us a living illustration of this intimacy that he wants between you and I. He put woman in the garden. And he instituted marriage for an illustration of intimacy. And it didn't take long for the enemy, Satan, to corrupt the intimacy between both man and woman, and then they and God. And sin entered the world, and you know where we're at now then. It severed the intimacy between a holy God and his beloved creation. And still God was not caught off guard. It wasn't a surprise event to God. He introduced to us that which would take away our sin and provide a way back to intimacy with God. And we see this in the showcase verse of the book of Genesis, Genesis 3.15. You'll remember this. Um, to Satan, God says this, And I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now that verse is the first installment, it's the, the first clue in this unfolding plan of salvation, God's method of restoring intimacy between us and him. And as we track this seed of the woman throughout the rest of the pages of scripture, more and more information is provided. In fact, the key to understanding the book of Genesis is to focus, and really, really the whole Bible, I believe, is to focus on the information revealed about this seed of the woman and his work that takes away our sin and reestablishes intimacy between we and God. So are you lacking in your intimacy with God this morning? Most of us have pursued a series of fruitless substitutions in our attempts to fill our deepest need, our void, a close relationship with our Father God. That's what we really need. And we've done all kinds of silly things to try to mask that or, 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 or fill that. Now, when Gunnar preached on Genesis 3, we learned that the seed is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who would fix our sin problem and open the door to intimacy with the Father, God. He's the guy. Does it all sound familiar? Are you caught up? Any surprises? Okay, we're jumping in now. 
Now, okay, thus far we have learned that the seed of the woman would come through Adam and Eve's child, Seth, Genesis 4. The seed of the woman would come through Seth's offspring, Noah, Genesis 6. The seed would come to us through Noah's son, Shem, Genesis 11. And the seed would come through Shem's great, 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 plus a few grandson, Abram, or Abraham, however you want to call him, Genesis 12. Now, the life of Abraham is showcased in Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 25. He gets a lot of chapters of the Bible, which tells you he's a really important person. He's one of the four main characters in the book of Genesis. Now, as Gunnar pointed out, Abraham today is honored by Christians, by Jews, and by Arabs. We all consider Abraham the father of our faiths. Everyone looks to Abraham. Abraham's a significant figure. And still, the Bible presents him as a man. And even the best of men, at their best, are still just men. Abraham, like you and I, demonstrated great bouts of faith and destructive bouts of doubt as well. And we've seen that. We saw doubt when Abraham, out of fear, minimized his relationship with his wife, passing her off merely as his sister. And after she ended up in Pharaoh's harem, we saw God intervene and rescue her. And contrast that to Abraham's faith in offering his nephew Lot the best land. Take your pick, Lot. You choose. So as to maintain peace between their growing camps. Abraham was learning that taking the back seat, in taking the back seat, you can't thwart the promise-making God from being the promise-keeping God. You can't thwart God. Now, Genesis 14 expands that truth, and it teaches us that God always keeps his promises, and he keeps those to whom he has made promises. God always keeps his promises, but he also keeps those to whom he has made those promises. Do you believe it? Are you hanging your head on that one? Let's test it out. Do your actions demonstrate that you believe it? I mean, consider that. As we enter Genesis 14, Genesis 14, we see the actions that demonstrate Abraham did believe that God always keeps his promises and that he keeps those to whom the promises are made. Um, over here, is the map in there? No, there it is. So there's Gunner's map. Um, Genesis 14, let's go ahead and jump right in. Starting in verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amraphael, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Cheddar Lamor is the best you're going to get from me, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, we'll call them the four kings, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and uh, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shimabur, king of Zoibam, whatever, and then king of uh, King Bela, uh, this, that is uh, Zor, we'll call them the five kings. Four kings versus five kings, leave it at that. And all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. And you see the map reference up there. Uh, Gunner's pointed this out several times. We have the area where Abraham uh, pretty much settled. And then we have all these other areas around there. And so these kings, the four kings, are going to come from this area way over here and start wiping out all the people around. Now, why was it that the four kings made war with the five kings? The passage tells us the background. Verse 4. Twelve years they had served Cheddar Lamor, 
But the 13th year, they had rebelled. And we can speculate on how the kings rebelled. Perhaps they uh, quit paying tribute money to uh, Chedorlaomer. But we have no record of that. And maybe they tarred and feathered uh, Chedorlaomer's uh, ambassador to the area and threw him out. But we have no record of that. Regardless of the offense, the record seems to indicate that it became trendy for the entire region to shake off the authority of Cheddar Lamor. Read on with me. Verse 5. In the 14th year, Cheddar Lamor, the king and the kings that were with him, came and defeated Raphaim and Zuzim and Emim and the Horites and Mount Seir as far as Alparan, which is in the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the countries of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who live in Hazazan Tamar. So in explaining the battle of the four kings against the five kings, we're told that Chedorlaomer was on this campaign of devastation for all the kingdoms that are around the five kings. He hasn't got to them yet. He's been wiping out everybody. It seems likely that these surrounding nations had also rebelled against his rule. And perhaps the five kings were just following suit in that rebellion and shaking off uh, the shackles of being under him. Now, regardless of the geopolitical causes, the five kings are about to pay for shaking off the bonds of the four kings. And here it comes, verse 8. And the five kings came out and they arrayed for battle against the four kings in the valley of Siddim. Verse 9, four kings against five kings. Now catch the shift here in verse 10. This is important. There's a shift from five kings down to two kings. Verse 10, and now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the, king, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, two kings, and they fell into the pits. But those who survived fled to the hill countries. Then they, the four kings, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Now, we may conclude that the four kings took all of the goods of all the five kings, not just those two of the five kings. But what the text is doing here, it's narrowing our focus in this story. It's causing us to focus more and more down to the important issues, the issue of how this event impacts the unfolding story of the seed of the woman. Watch this, verse 12. They also took Lot. Abram's nephew, and his possessions, and departed, for he was living in Sodom. This event, this this story, this history, is offered to us as a significant event in the revelation of the promise-keeping God. That's what the story is about. Unfortunately, it kind of reads wrong from this point on. Don't worry, I'll fix it today. You see, the story should read is, or at least it could read, it could say after this, and Abraham remembered God's promise in Genesis 13, 14 through 17 to lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west and all the land you see I will give you and your offsprings forever. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. So Abraham saw that God had removed all those pagan nations from the land which God had promised him and now he's free to get on with it without those people around and so they lived happily ever after. That's how it could have read, but it didn't. 
Abraham doesn't simply believe God is a promise-keeping God. Look, I've got the land. Abraham understood that the God who makes promises is also the God who keeps and protects those to whom he has made the promise. And hence, the story reads on more accurately and rightly, verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abraham the Hebrew. First time Abraham is called a Hebrew, but that's for free. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard, here it is, that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit of Dan. Now several truths come to mind here. The first one is out of Luke 7, where Jesus tells an illustration. It's a beautiful illustration. You'll know this one. Jesus is sitting there, and, and someone's asking him a question. He says, well, here, Luke seven forty one. he says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee answered and said, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said, bingo. The principle there is that he who is forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And when Abraham let his wife be taken in the Pharaoh's harem, Abraham had committed this grievous sin. I mean, the sin that not only had consequences for him, but also for his wife, for all of Egypt, and more importantly, for the unfolding story of the seed of the woman, God's plan. God not only rescues him, but God also blessed and restored him. Remember that? Rather than blast Abram into repentance, God blessed Abraham into repentance. Abraham had been forgiven much, and Abraham knew that. And in kind, Abraham had this depth of love for his nephew Lot that I think exceeded even familial ties. I mean, how many of you would do this for your family? Abraham, the man who had forgiven, been forgiven much, loved Lot much. And when Abraham heard about the capture of Lot, Abraham did not resort to a committee or to even a delay for prayer. Abraham strapped on his spurs and mounted up for action. But Abraham, what about God's promise to you? I mean, if you die, you're going to mess up God's plan. Abraham's not thinking that way. Not an issue. Abraham demonstrates that he believed God was not only the promise-keeping God, but also the God who keeps those to whom he has made the promise. Therefore, Abraham could take the risk and go and save his nephew Lot which, by the way, wasn't real smart tactically. Listen, a man filled with the Holy Spirit of God, one who takes God at his word and moves to actions, tends to be a man with contagious faith. When Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, the Amorite, his, his uh, neighbors, see this Abraham, some 80-ish years old, mounting up, they decide to join him as well. We'll go with you. Let's go. And I'm reminded of, of Isaiah 40. I don't know what comes to mind. Isaiah 40. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men may stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Abraham saw a need. And that need filled Abraham with love 
and compassion. And that love and compassion brought Abraham to action without delay, and others followed him. Go, Abraham. And we children of the New Testament, we recognize that this is what we call the working of the Holy Spirit of God. Something was going on, and Abraham reacted. Does this happen today? Absolutely. I get this text from Gunner. You know Gunner. Monday, April 25th. John, I have this sense that I need to go to Romania. Response, if God's leading, don't drag your feet. Tuesday, April 26th, I've got tickets. Can you preach May 15th? Sure. Wednesday, April 27th, Rick Price wants to go with me. Okay. Sunday, May 8th, Gunner comes in here last week. He preaches Genesis 13, and he makes, you, uh, makes it known that he's going to Romania. Monday, May 9th, John, Micah, Rich and Erica's son, Micah, wants to join us in Romania. And he has a passport. What do you think? Let's see. God leads Gunner to Romania. At men's prayer meeting, Rick becomes the answer to his own prayer. Gunner preaches about the trip. Micah, who can actually lift the 50-pound suitcases, <laughs> responds to the preaching and wants to participate. I think that's a Holy Spirit thing. <laughs> Gunner, Rick, Micah are experiencing the truth right now that God keeps His promises and He keeps those to whom the promises are made. Aren't you glad, Mom and Dad? No, your pastor did not take your son to a war zone. Gunner stayed at home with the kids. <laughs> those who are forgiven much, love much. 50 pounds each, suitcases, what they bring? Trauma kits and medical supplies. If I know Gunner, he had his extra underwear and his carry-on. And if you'd like to hear how the trauma kits get from Romania to Ukraine, join us next week and Gunner will fill you in with photos. How about you? What promises has God made to you? How has God kept you in the midst of those promises He has made to you? Because I know He has, because that's the kind of God we have. And as we pick up our story, we see that God does indeed keep Abraham. Verse 15, join me. So Abraham divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse 16, Abram brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Now, while we would focus on the actual battle, and Gunnar shared with me, oh, I wanted to teach that. I wanted to talk about the battle. <laughs> while we would do that, how it was that Abraham with 318 trained men plus a few allies wiped out four kings, four kings who had decimated all of the region, God gives us minimal facts so as not to distract us from the point of the story. I mean, think about for a second your own moral failures. Many times the biggest moral failures take place on the heels of our greatest moral victories. And then we crash. But not so with Abram. Verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of the four kings... The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. 
Now, warning, I'm skipping a few verses for the moment. Go to verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give, me the, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Well, it's the spoils of war. They belong to Abram anyways, right? But keep the stuff, just give me the people. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abraham rich. It's not enough that Abraham believes that the promise-keeping God is keeping his promises to those to whom the promises are made. To Abraham, it's important that everyone else knows that the promise-keeping God keeps those to whom promises are made. And just so there's no confusion, Abraham rejects his rights to the victor's spoils. Abraham isn't going to let anyone share in God's glory. Abraham says this is a God thing. Abraham's actions are in keeping with his beliefs. No moral failure on the heels of victory. So how can you respond in a manner that shows that you too believe that the God who has protected you, who has preserved you, who has promised you, is going to keep doing that? What can you do? Now, it's interesting that Abraham does not impose his moral convictions on his allies. Verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. He's just saying, I'm not going to touch anything, but they can have their share. Okay, great story, great history, decent applications for us, decent sermon, time for lunch. But what does it have to do with the unveiling of the seed of the woman? We have to go back to verse 18 to get the rest of the story, because everything you've just heard is simply backstory for what God really wants to communicate here. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the God most high. Melchizedek seems to appear almost mysteriously out of the pages of Scripture. This guy. Who exactly is he? Well, the text tells us he's a king and he's a priest of the God Most High. But that's about it. If you read, uh, Google him, you'll see all kinds of weird stuff. But the Bible only tells you this. And the oddity here is that Melchizedek is a priest 400 years before the Mosaic priestly system was established. This is pre-Judaism. Melchizedek is not Jewish. He is not a Levitical priest. In fact, Melchizedek is not a known relative of Abram. He's, he's outside the lineage of the promised seed of the woman. He has nothing to do with the seed of the woman. Now follow me. Abraham was so concerned that no one would share in God's glory in relation to blessing Abram that he even rejected his rightful spoil in the face of the king of Sodom. Abraham is certainly not going to now wrongfully receive a blessing from some religious upstart, some unknown. But, verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now don't read that he gave him a tenth of the spoil because he didn't take any of that. He gave him a tenth of his possessions. In receiving a blessing from Melchizedek, and in giving an offering to Melchizedek, Abram validates that Melchizedek is, in fact, a genuine priest of God Most High. Through Melchizedek, Abraham was worshiping God. Okay. Now, one of the objections to Jesus, the seed of the woman, being the genuine article, the genuine Messiah, the seed of the woman, was that Jesus was not even from a priestly family. It was illegal under the Aaronic priesthood, under the Jewish law, for a non-Levitical priest to make an offering. Solid objection. It would hold up in court. Good point. But if Jesus held the office of priest of God Most High within a religious order that was both outside of and superior to the Levitical priesthood, that would change everything. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches. The next appearance of Melchizedek is in Psalm 110, a Jewish book. Psalm 110. I'm going to read you a few verses out of Psalm 110. You'll know it by heart. I know this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is God talking to Jesus. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as due. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's God talking in Psalms. According to the Jewish scriptures, the Messiah would in fact be a priest from the order of Melchizedek, not a Levitical priest at all. First time I heard this, I didn't care. But it's a big deal. And as you might expect, the New Testament book that is actually written to Hebrews, it's called Hebrews, explains this connection of Jesus to Melchizedek in chapters 5, 6, and 7. My Sunday school people know this. Hebrews makes it clear that Psalm 110 is talking about Jesus. Hebrews 5, 5, listen. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten thee, has also said, another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. The Jewish temple had two main chambers. There was this, the holy place, you couldn't go in there. And there was the holy of holies, you certainly couldn't go in there. And these were separated by this huge curtain, this huge veil. And only once a year could the high priest go behind that veil and offer blood atonement at the little articles that were back there for the sins of the people. And Matthew 27 tells us that when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for our sins, the veil tore in two. The Holy of Holies was open. The way of the Holy of Holies was no longer blocked. With that in mind, Hebrews tells us, in Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, 
having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, all of that there is backgrounded for you here in Genesis 14. You have to know what's going on. And the imagery is quite beautiful. This high priest of a system superior to that of the Mosaic law, older than the Jewish system, with a priest who was honored by Abram, the father of the Jewish faith, this superior high priest enters the Holy of Holies of the Jewish inferior system, a system that is now obsolete because Jesus spilled his own blood for the payment of your sin and my sin once for all. And now because of that sacrifice, we too have unveiled access to intimacy with God available to us. That's what the story's about. That's what the story of Abraham's great victory is really about, knowing that the promise-keeping God keeps those to whom he has made promises. But that truth actually means nothing without Jesus. Going overseas and showing your acts of faith and moving mountains and chasing armies means nothing without Jesus. Abraham's bravery, swift action, rescue of Lot, good reputation, really means nothing without the seed of the woman, Jesus. Adventures in Budapest, they don't really matter without Jesus. So what about God's promise to you? Well, here's a few I'll give you, and you probably have your favorites. Here's a promise, truth, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. A promise, truth. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's made it available for you to become God's righteousness. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That's a promise. And of course, John 1.12, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? These promises then are for you and me. You see, it's really about Jesus. If you will cling to, God, to the God of these promises, you will find that the God who makes these promises is also the God who will preserve, who will protect who will watch out for you, who will keep you throughout the execution of these promises. And that's why we here, Christians, we take risks. We step out, we obey, we move, we do things. Because we trust God is doing something with us. And so, what is God moving you to do today? How are your actions going to demonstrate that you belong to Jesus? Maybe some here need to be baptized. Do it. You know, up front, we're, we're, the church is really here to help you. Um, it's been a great help to me. We're help you, uh, here to help you on your, on your, what I'll call your journey of faith. 
so that you're not really taking a leap of faith, but you can take little steps of faith to get there. So do make use of our prayer partners up front. Do make use of, uh, give Gunnar a call if you need something. Reach out to those here who you know love you. And take actions that are consistent with your faith that the promise-making God is the God who will keep you to whom he has made these promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Genesis 14 is something much more than just an adventure story of uh, Abraham saving Lot and all this sort of thing. But Lord, it's about Jesus. So Father, do what you will to condition us, to convict us, to bless us into repentance and obedience. Help our lives to be lives that are about service to you. And then when you bring us home, Lord, oh, that will be glory for me. Hmm. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.